like most, most Christians I know, feel like evangelistic failures. You may not. I'm really glad you don't. And that's terrific. But most Christians I know do. We look back at our failures, the times when we should have said something and we didn't, or the times when we thought of what to say 24 hours after the event, or the times when we did say something and we wish we hadn't, and the times when we purposely worked the conversation around to make sure that we could avoid having anything to say. Evangelism can be so fearful an activity that it's something that Christians and non-Christians alike agree about. We agree that we don't like it. They don't want us to tell them about the gospel and we don't want to tell them about the gospel and that is the only area of agreement I've ever found with non-Christians on evangelism. Sometimes it's the fear of facing difficult questions or difficult people. Sometimes it's the fear of facing people at all. Just the whole concept that I'm actually going to talk to a stranger or talk to anybody about anything can be paralysing. And it seems such an unnatural activity in our particular culture and period of history. Because we live in a time of cultural tolerance. Live and let live is the kind of Australian motto. Keep the peace, keep harmony, don't ever talk about sex, politics or religion because that divides, so just shut up about it. They never shut up about sex, they never shut up about politics, but the rule applies to religion. Uh, what right have we got to go around telling people how they should live? Let alone telling them that they're wrong and should repent of the ways in which they live and that they need to change their ways. And so we become fearful. Uh, fearful of being rejected, fearful of being laughed at, and fearful of being thought mad and fearful of being left out left out of the work group, work, left out of a friendship group, left, left out of our family, left out of life because, well, we're the religious nutter who will talk about Christianity when it's not appropriate. If you ask the question, when is it appropriate? The answer is when we're not around. That is the time it's appropriate for you to talk about religion. It doesn't help when we feel so ineffective in our evangelism. We don't look back to a long string of all the people who have been converted through our faithful witness. We look back and can't remember anybody. In fact, we look back and wonder if, we've, if anybody has ever been so much as touched by our witness, if anybody has even noticed our attempts to evangelise. And it's not hard then to kind of generalise out from there and wonder if, actually anybody gets converted these days, whether there's any effective evangelism and whether the pundits aren't right that Christianity is in decline, lost its power to reach people and in need of serious revision. Well, let's go back to where we were last week, where we talked about the commissioned plan of God. Now, we saw it two weeks ago, rather, at the end of Luke's Gospel. Now, because there's several other passages to read tonight, Naomi, who's down in the front row, is going to be the voice that you will hear. It is not God, it is Naomi, and it's quite safe, and God hasn't suddenly taken on a 
soprano, contralto voice. Uh, but it's, if you'll turn in your Bibles to page 1067, 1067, it's the end of Luke's Gospel where Jesus has risen from the dead and is now meeting with his disciples and commissioning them for the task that will follow from this. So it's Luke 24, and Naomi, if you'll read from verse 44, please. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Keep it open there and notice what it's saying. We know that the plan of God was that the Christ must suffer. And must rise. Peter spoke on the day of Pentecost, spoke of Jesus being delivered up by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It's the plan of God. And Luke here is describing for us how when Jesus rose from the dead, he showed his disciples his death and resurrection was clearly prophesied in the Old Testament. So he opened their minds to understand about the law of Moses and prophets and the Psalms, that's the whole Old Testament, was pointing to this. That is, Jesus' death was not suddenly losing, God losing control or Jesus failing in his mission. This was God's eternal and prophesied plan and purpose. He came into the world to save sinners by dying on our behalf and dying in our place. And just as certainly as he came to die, he also came to rise in glory, having paid for sin, defeated death, to rise up and sit at the right hand of God in all power and authority. And as God planned Jesus' death and resurrection, so God also planned that, and here it is for us in verse 47, repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. This was not an optional extra or a possibility that it might take place, especially if the apostles felt like it sometimes. This was God's plan from the beginning. For there was no point Jesus paying for the sins of the world by his sacrificial death and nobody being told about it. The message for today in the light of Jesus' death and resurrection is simple. Repent. That is, turn back from the way in which you're living, you're going the wrong way, turn around, head back the other way. For forgiveness is available and possible. And more than that, through the death of Jesus, is yours. Forgiveness, full and free and complete, for the price for your sin has fully been paid for. So world evangelism is as central and essential to the plan and purposes of God as Jesus' death and resurrection were. As surely as God planned Jesus to die and rise again, so surely God planned that the message would go out to all nations. It's not genuine Christianity that accepts the death and resurrection of Jesus but fails to support world mission. 
if you're not supporting world mission, it's questionable whether you have understood Jesus' death and resurrection at all. Jesus died that we may bring people from every nation, tribe and language to forgiveness. This world mission was not limited to the apostles because we saw last week the requirement of imitating Paul who imitated Jesus. So we turn in our Bibles further ahead in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you'll turn up there, it's page 1153. 1153, 1 Corinthians 10. Now Paul was not one who was in the the 11 in the upper room being given that great commission yet he was the apostle to the Gentiles commissioned on the road to Damascus now he knew that he was an apostle and because he was an apostle he was not like every other Christian for he had personally seen the risen Jesus and he was given the mission to the nations but some aspects of Paul were classic for all Christians and one aspect for Paul that he saw for everybody was living our lives in sacrifice for the salvation of other people. It's the same for every Christian. So he concludes an argument that runs from chapters 8 to 10 in verses 31 of chapter 10, chapter 10, verse 31, and Naomi will read through to us chapter 11, verse 1, please. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offence to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. We who follow the Lord Jesus Christ, we are to follow him in his self-sacrificial concern for the lost, laying down our lives for the salvation of other people. Now, we may not be called upon to be a martyr, laying down a life like that. Some people are. There is a, there's a man in, in Iran at the moment, a pastor of a church there, and he is on death row, has been for the last two years, because of his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, seeking to have his church registered, was placed in prison, and is condemned to death by hanging. All appeals have failed. He is a man who may be martyred for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ and the freedom of people to preach his name. But more likely than being martyred in one great moment is the being martyred by instalments. As time after time, we put ourselves out for other people's salvation, not pursuing our own interests or our own advantages and benefits, but rather seeking to please other people for their advantage. And what is the advantage that we seek? End of verse 33. That they may be saved. That's the advantage we seek for other people. And in doing this, we are imitating not just Paul, chapter 11, verse 1, but also Christ. Okay, let's summarise where we're up to. One, many of us feel like evangelistic failures. Two, the plan of God is for world evangelism. Three, Christians imitate Christ evangelistically. But how? 
Number one is the one that seems to grab us the most clearly sometimes, doesn't it? Telling other people about Jesus is just not where I'm, I'm not really any good at it and I'm not sure I've done it well and I'm not sure I can do it any better tomorrow. And here is the great answer for our dilemma, namely the coming of the Spirit. This is what Jesus in the upper room promised on the night he was betrayed when he was with his disciples on the Last Supper. Five times, as we read, as Mark read those passages for us earlier on the evening, five times he promised the coming of the Spirit after his death and resurrection. And in particular, he promised that the Spirit would be his witness and that they too would be his witnesses. So in 1526, uh, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. The word witness actually is the Greek word martyr. That's the very idea that you actually are standing up for Christ. Now, as I've mentioned to you before, you don't call upon a witness when everybody agrees on the evidence. You only call upon a witness when people challenge the truth. If everyone's in agreement, you don't need a witness, everyone agrees. It's when somebody says, no, that's not true, that you say, well, hang on, let's call in some witnesses to see. So witnessing is always speaking against other people. Now, the promise is that the Spirit of God is coming as Christ's witness. And the disciples are also witnesses, but the Spirit is coming to them that they will do what he does, that he will enable them to do what they are to do. This chapter 15, we didn't give you the page number, but come back and look at it for just a moment, chapter 15 there, page 1088, 1088. This chapter 15 comes in the context, this promise of the Spirit comes in the context of the predicted persecution that will come upon Christians. Look back just one page to 1518. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So the witnessing is standing against the world, is contesting with the world, is pushing forward a view that the world denies, but you're not alone in this. The Holy Spirit is coming and he is the witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are the little witnesses, little W. He's the big W witness. He's the one who is coming to witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we look down to chapter 16 on 1088, chapter 16, we read this again promise of the coming of the Spirit in verse 7 of chapter 16. Thanks, Naomi. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Strange to think 
that it would be an advantage to have Jesus go away. I reckon when the disciples heard that, they would have really been scratching their head. No, don't go away. I'd rather have you here. Why do I want you to go away? I've left my nets to follow you. I'm here in Jerusalem at the great Passover time. You keep talking about being killed and now you're saying, look, it'll be better for you when I go away. I don't see that it'll be better for me when you go away. But yet it will be better. It'll be better because he paid the penalty for their sin. But it was more than that. For in this passage, it'll be better for you for the Holy Spirit won't come until I have gone. And notice what the Spirit was to do. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness and judgment. Now the word convict is a strong and important word that explains the role of the Holy Spirit. When it says he will convict the world, the word convict means expose, refute, convince. It's used, for example, in John chapter 8, verse 46, where Jesus asks, which of you convicts me of sin? It's the word of judgment that will expose the truth of the situation. And so it's a word that carries the sense of exposing the error, revealing the crime for all to see, and carries the idea of showing shame and guilt for people, for it convinces the world of its error. What will ever convince the world? What will ever convict the world? What will ever leave people saying, you're right and I have been wrong. It's not the cleverness of my preaching, it's not the cleverness of my argument, it's not my lovely winsome ways, it's, it's not the, the power of the music, it's not the what will, it's the Holy Spirit, that's what he comes to do. He comes to convince, convict, refute, expose the truth and the lies so that people will see that Jesus is Christ. And John recounts the fulfilment of this upper room promise, also in the upper room as I see it, when the risen Jesus appeared to the disciples. It's just over a page or so, chapter 20, chapter 20, just a couple of pages across, picking it up from uh, chapter 20, verse 19. Thanks, Naomi. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you will withhold the forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. The disciples couldn't go out into the world without the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus, which brought forgiveness. But they couldn't do that and declare to the world the forgiveness of sins until they themselves had received it and understood it fully. And the coming of the Holy Spirit from the resurrected Lord Jesus was that empowerment that enabled them to preach the gospel of Jesus. 
For now through them the Holy Spirit was going to convict the world and change the hearts so that they could declare forgiveness. Uh, I, I do something mean and nasty to Naomi here. And uh, Cam pops up and says, that's all right, Philip, you're forgiven. Nothing to do with Cam. How can he forgive me for what I've done to Naomi? That's ridiculous, isn't it? Well, okay, you've done terrible things, wicked things, evil things, nasty things, embarrassing things, things of which you're ashamed, things that you would hope no one else in this room knows that you've done. You've been there, you've done that. And they are things against God and they are things against other people. And I'm going to stand up here and say, it's all right, you're forgiven. And the answer is, what's it got to do with you, Philip? I mean, it's against God or it's against this other person. Who are you to go around forgiving sins? And the answer is, I am speaking on behalf of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit through me is declaring to you what the Lord Jesus Christ has done on the cross and risen again. For it is the Holy Spirit's message of forgiveness that the disciples had to wait in Jerusalem until they had received this empowerment from on high that Jesus spoke of here as he breathed on them his spirit. And so in thinking about evangelism and our evangelism, our attempt as partners in the gospel here to reach the city of Sydney, we must take into account the spirit of Christ. This is really where the rubber hits the roads for us tonight, friends. It's all very well to told we've got to go out and preach the gospel. It's all very well told to say, be like Jesus. Well, we know what happened to him, he was crucified. But there's another element to it that's really important this week, that is, the coming of the Holy Spirit. Which brings us to the passage that actually tonight's sermon's about. It's nice to reach the passage eventually, isn't it? It's 1 Peter chapter 1 and it's verse page 1219. 1219, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now that is one long complicated sentence or so there, isn't it? Maybe two, but it's long and complicated. Just, just keep your eyes on that part of the Bible here for a moment or two while we work it out. Notice how the Spirit was at work in the Old Testament prophets, first of all. It was the Spirit of Christ within them that was indicating the sufferings of the Christ and the subsequent glories of the Christ. Well, we know because as Peter tells us in his second letter that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So part of the art and character and nature of prophecy is the Holy Spirit speaks through his prophets, God's word. So prophecy will always have the Holy Spirit of God speak. True prophecy will always have that. Now this Holy Spirit is none other than the Spirit of Christ. 
the God, the Son, from all eternity. And he sent his Spirit, the Spirit of his Father, into the prophets to prepare his way. And that's why it says in Luke 24 how he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures because the Scriptures had prepared the way. The Scriptures had told of the Christ suffering and rising again because the Spirit of Christ had inspired the prophets of the Old Testament Scriptures with exactly this message. The Spirit by the prophets were predicting sufferings and glories of Christ, that the Christ must suffer, that the Christ must rise again. But that was the plan of God from the beginning. The way to glory is the way of the cross. Because that's a completely different to the way the world thinks, isn't it? The way to glory is conquest, beating. It's, it's beating everybody else in your class so you win the university medal. It's running faster than anybody else in the race so that you get the gold medal. It's, the way to glory for us is conquest. But the way to glory for God is self-sacrifice. For the way of glory is giving, not taking. And so as Andrew ran through those things that we thought about in contrast between the church and the city, there's things like the church and the city, but there's contrast. One of them is that we are not materialists and consumerists who take, 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 take. We've got a different culture altogether. We've got the cross, the cross, the cross, which gives, gives, gives. For the way to glory is giving, not taking very different is the concept that we're talking of but that's been predicted all through the old testament that when the christ comes he will suffer die rise again but notice also here in 1 peter how these prophets were serving not their own generation but they were serving the gospel generation looking at the verses in front of us here it was revealed, verse 12, it was revealed to them, that is the prophets of old, that they were serving not themselves, but you. Now this is a very, very important principle to grasp hold of here, friends, that the Old Testament is not a Jewish book. It's all about Jews, written by Jews, but it wasn't written for Jews. It was written for Christians. Some of us Christians are Jews, so we've got a double banger there, so it was written for us both ways, but it was written for Christians. That is the nature of the book we have. This is not the Jewish scriptures and then the New Testament is the Christian scriptures. The whole scriptures are the Christian scriptures. For the Old Testament was written not for their own age and generation and people. The Old Testament was written for you, for us, those gospel generation with people. It was written with us in mind, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians about the events of Exodus and Moses. And he said, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. All kinds of things happened out in the wilderness. If you remember the events that happened in the book of the Exodus and the like, and all kinds of things, and they were attacked by serpents, when they were attacked, when the, the giving of the, uh, of the law and the, the Ten Commandments, but also the golden calf, all kinds of things happened to them out there. And they happened to them as examples for us, but they're examples for us. They were written down for us. Who were the us in that? Why, the, those people upon whom the end of the ages has come. 
That's for whom the Old Testament is written. God's Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, was at work preparing the way by inspiring the Old Testament so that the death and resurrection of Jesus, as well as the preaching of the gospel of Jesus, would make sense, could be understood, could be seen as the plan of God when the disciples' minds were opened by the Holy Spirit as Jesus taught them the truth. So come back here to 1 Peter 1, verses 10 to 12. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves in the things announced to you. There's the plan of God, the sufferings and glories of Christ. These things have been announced to you in a conjunction of two ways. We're coming really now to where the rubber hits the road, friends, and this, once you grasp it, liberates you and overcomes such fear and gives you such freedom. Listen carefully, this is really important. Through those who preached the gospel, the gospel came. Now, up in Turkey, which is where 1 Peter was written to, you'll see that up in chapter 1, verse uh, 1 and 2, if you want to know. Up in Turkey, the Apostle Paul preached the gospel, and others also preached there, no doubt. And without the gospel, they would not have understood what the scriptures were foretelling, nor would they be forgiven, even though Jesus had died for them. But secondly, and co-jointly, and here's the point, these things have been announced to you not only through those who preached the gospel to you, but also by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. The gospel comes actually in the Greek by the movement of the Spirit, which is seen in the preaching of the preachers. The fundamental evangelist for today is the Holy Spirit. He gives words to the preachers of the gospel. He who was sent from heaven by the risen Son is convicting the world of sin, righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they don't believe in Jesus. Concerning righteousness, because Jesus has gone to the Father because of concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged already in the defeat in Calvary. That is, the Holy Spirit's work is evangelism. He is the evangelist. He inspired the Old Testament prophets and he announces the gospel in the New Testament to us. Human agents that he uses to speak the gospel are the ones through whom he works. He works through us. Now, he needn't. The Holy Spirit could have preached the gospel by getting an angel to fly mid-heaven, declaring the gospel to the world, if he wanted to. Revelation chapter 14, verse 6 speaks of such a creature. But God, in his wisdom, decided the way to preach the gospel to the world was through humans. And so, the humans are to announce the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, the good news of repentance and forgiveness. And God in his mercy has chosen to send this message through us. It's like when Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, he thanked God and he says, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of man, 
but as the, what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. I'm talking in human words, English, in case you didn't recognize it, to a group of people who are listening and thinking and hearing what I'm saying. But in as much as I'm saying what the Bible is saying, in as much as I'm saying what the gospel truth is saying, it is not I who am speaking, but God who is speaking to you this night. And because it is the Spirit of God, the words that are shared, the words that are spoken, the message of the cross that is declared, the forgiveness that is declared to you, this message actually is at work in you, changing you, transforming you, or possibly for the first time, convicting you and convincing you and persuading you. That is an extraordinary concept, isn't it? That out of my mouth can come the very word of God. I mean, when God created the world, he did it by his word. That same power is found in the gospel. For the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The Jew first and also to the Greek. It is the power of God lies in the simple words I speak. But that's not because it's I, Philip Jensen. Because it's the Holy Spirit and the truth of the gospel. Remember, one of the prophets of the Old Testament was Balaam's ass, his donkey. God the Spirit can speak through any donkey. You too have a chance to be spoken through by God's Spirit. It's not got to do with the wisdom of the preacher or the eloquence of the preacher. or the. It's got to do with the truth of God's Word. It's got to do with the work of the Holy Spirit inspiring this message and opening the heart of the hearer. Evangelism is a fundamentally spiritual activity. And while I feel weak and inadequate and insecure and unsure and I think, gee, my arguments are very not very good and if they ask me that question I don't know how I'll answer it and I'm actually afraid of that person because they look big and powerful and I'm terrified of that person because they look rich and clever. None of that matters when you understand that the Holy Spirit is speaking through you to bring about the conviction of sin, righteousness and judgment to come. For I cannot persuade anybody of anything but the Holy Spirit can persuade people to turn back their life totally to the Lord Jesus Christ and find forgiveness and mercy in the day of need. And so, this work he does in us, he does in us so that he will do it in others. For why are you a Christian? Is it because you are clever? Is it because you got it all thought out and worked out? Or because you were moral and you didn't have much to repent about? Or because you were a religious person anyway and, and have that kind of spirituality? No. It's because the Holy Spirit has touched your heart and mind. So that as you've heard of Jesus and his death and resurrection, you've said, that's true. 
that's right that's true that's what I need to do I need to turn back and find forgiveness and if the Holy Spirit can do it to you he can do it to anybody we talk to now it's all done through humans but you notice the place humans have got not all that much is it for it's the Holy Spirit who speaks through humans to humans that the Holy Spirit is bringing to repentance it's his work we we just like the microphone or the receiver he is the speaker he is the message so do not get yourself absorbed in fear of oh could I do it or couldn't I do it of course you could see the microphone here it doesn't worry I wonder if I'm going to be able to amplify the voice tonight or not it doesn't have to think like that because it knows nothing of this it's the, the speaker who has the power the Holy Spirit is the speaker he is the witness and we also are witnesses for he witnesses through us it's a terrific concept and a little passage that most people read straight past especially verse 12 the things that have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look you want to ask any questions before we move to a time of prayer question picks up from John chapter 19 where the passage Jesus says whosoever sins you forgive are forgiven and whosoever sins you do not forgive are not forgiven and the question is well uh, how can you do that and the answer is of course I can't do that and of course I can do that I can't do it myself because your sin is against God and he is the one who is to declare your forgiveness but I can do it because God uses humans to do it now he doesn't have to you could repent and then a voice could come from heaven like Naomi you know and you're forgiven but that's not how God has chosen to do it he's chosen to do it through his messengers but how can I know whether you should be forgiven or not well it depends what you say if you say look I've done the wrong thing and I'm going to turn away from that completely and I want God to forgive me because Jesus has paid for it I will say you're forgiven but if you say to me no I haven't really done the wrong thing I don't think it's all that wrong I mean I'm glad I've done it frankly then I'll say to you you're not forgiven the power lies not in me the power lies in repentance and forgiveness that is declared by the Holy Spirit through me but it's not through me the priest because James chapter 5 I think it is says confess your sins to one another you don't have to confess yourselves to the reverend one another there's a reformer in the 16th century who said he went all over England and he couldn't find father one another anywhere to confess to <laughs> each of us who have the gospel can declare forgiveness to the other 
and also can warn people if you don't repent you won't be forgiven it's both messages Yes, thank you. If the, if the power and the effect of convicting people is all in the work of the Holy Spirit, what role do we play then in, in kind of persuading people? I mean, why don't we just say, Mary had a little lamb, convert, convict, you know? I mean, I, I could just say anything. And Well, the Holy Spirit works through our minds and our speech into the hearing and the minds of the other person. That is... God's miraculous work is generally done through the agencies of the creation that God has made. You know, the Red Sea, the crossing of the Red Sea was an incredible thing. The wind was driven back, the whole nation walked across the Red Sea, then the wind stopped and the waters came back over the Egyptians. But notice, it was the great wind that drove the water back. God used the agency of the natural order of this world to bring about the biggest miracle in the Old Testament. Now, he doesn't always explain how he does it, but he generally uses the agencies of this natural order to bring about his purposes. The one that he uses to bring about his purposes, to inform people's minds, is the speech of others. And so he inspired the prophets to speak the truth as he opened the minds of people who are listening to understand the truth. And so therefore, I seek to persuade. I will reason, I will argue. I just have to keep remembering, though, that they're not converted by my persuasion or my argument or my reasoning. Because you can get so wound up in in arguing and persuading people that you, like a salesman, think that it's all up to you to do the kind of clever persuasion. And in the end, the thing that's going to change the heart of the recipient is the Holy Spirit. Uh, his master's voice was an old, I don't know if it's still around, HMV, is it? an old company of, of sound systems. And of course, the logo of his master's voice was this dog looking into a early phonograph machine trying to work out how come his master's voice was coming out of this machine the people of God recognize their master's voice in the gospel message they just know that's got the ring of truth about it my job is to speak that message faithfully so that they will hear it I just missed the last bit, and so if it matters, come back to me about it. But I hear you're saying, if it's the Holy Spirit who does this work of changing hearts and the like, should we be praying to the Holy Spirit to do this work in people? Yep. Yes and no. Yes, of course. And one of the great failures of people who evangelise, I put my hand up here, is that we forget to pray. Now, God in his mercy will bless all kinds of things without us praying. But frankly, 
calling upon God to change hearts because it's something we really can't do is critical. But in general, you don't pray to the Spirit, you pray to the Father that he will so send his Spirit, the Spirit of his Son, into the hearts of people. For the nature of Christian prayer is that, and spiritual prayer, is that we call God Father and we pray to him through our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we call God Father, it's because the Spirit is within us. And when we pray through the Lord Jesus Christ, it's because the Spirit of God is within us. So spiritual prayer is praying to the Father through the Lord Jesus. But one of the things we should be praying for from the Father is the outpouring of his Spirit upon the people to whom we're speaking. And as we go through life, talking with people about the gospel, we should always be praying to God the Father that he would open their blind eyes, that he would open the hearts that are closed and and bitter and that he would change the minds of the people to whom we're speaking. So yes, we need to pray, but it's to the Father for the Spirit. Yes, the question is, yes, 1 John chapter 2, let me read it for us, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 27, 1 John 2, 27, uh, verse 26, he says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And the question was, is this the Holy Spirit? And the answer is yes. One of the ways of talking about the Holy Spirit is the anointing that we receive of the Holy Spirit. And he abides in us, and he is the one who teaches us and leads us into all truth, as Jesus promised in John chapter 16. Here is the fundamental work of the Spirit, friends. Much is spoken about the work of the Holy Spirit in the 20th century Christian church and much of what is spoken about is inadequate, inaccurate and untrue. The inadequacy and the inaccuracy though is the detachment of the work of the Holy Spirit from the great plan of God for salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. For the great work of the Spirit is to prepare the way through the prophets of the Old Testament and to transform people into becoming Christians through the preaching of the gospel in the New Testament. For he comes as the replacement of Jesus, so to speak. He comes to to put into effect the work of Jesus. Jesus dies on the cross, the Holy Spirit doesn't. Jesus pays the penalty for sin, the Holy Spirit doesn't. But the Holy Spirit applies that to the world through world evangelism. There is the fundamental work of the Holy Spirit so that he brings us to new birth so that we call God Father and Jesus our Lord because we've been born again by the Spirit of God. That is the great work of the Holy Spirit. And if that's what it is to be a charismatic, I'm a charismatic as every Christian is. But unfortunately, most people do not actually pay much attention to that major work of the Holy Spirit that Jesus taught in John's Gospel and you see reflected in our little passage tonight in 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12. 